This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Good Friday to you, sir. Oh, man, it is a good Friday indeed. Hey, uh, I've got... I just jumped on here. I've been totally focused on other stuff. I've got nothing in particular. Why don't you take the lead today? Tell us what we're going to talk about. Let's talk about shit testing, man, and what it takes to be a creator and why most people don't make that choice. I like it. All right. Uh, Give me the the definition. What do you mean? What's a shit test? Well, a shit test is what occurs – Anytime you make an effort to assert yourself in the world, and I don't mean improve yourself because self-improvement can be a very private sort of thing, right? But a shit test is what happens anytime you decide to step up and express yourself creatively or make your presence felt by offering your opinion or putting something out there in the world. And essentially what it is, is when the world gives you shit in order to test your worthiness of doing what it is you want to do. So if you make up your mind that you want to be a writer or you want to be an entrepreneur or you want to be a thought leader or whatever it is you want to do, the moment you move in the direction of that, the world's going to give you shit. They're going to mock you for it, maybe attack you or criticize you or whine or express worry and concern about you and do all sorts of things to indicate that they're not particularly comfortable or pleased with what it is you're doing. Um, And that is a test because if you bend in and orient your life around pleasing and appeasing others to not be offensive, to not make them uncomfortable, to make sure everyone's happy, they'll be satisfied with you, but they won't respect you because there's this inverse relationship between people being happy with you and people respecting you, people respecting you for who you are. That relationship doesn't always obtain, but if when people make demands on you and you say yes to them or you cave in because you want to please them, they'll love it, but they but they just won't be able to respect you for it. On the other hand, when you don't orient your life around pleasing and appeasing people and you say, no, this is what I believe. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I made up my mind. They may not be happy with you in the short term, but they will respect you because you pass their shit test. You pass the shit test when you say, I choose to be who I am in this world, not because it makes you happy and satisfied, but because it is true to who I am. When you look at people like Mike Malice or Jerry McClellan, they are perfect examples of people that are constantly being shit tested and constantly passing the shit test. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk about some of those specific examples in a minute. Um, But to observe on the concept of being liked versus being respected, I actually have um, an article on Medium with that title, the difference between being liked and being respected or something like that. Or uh, I can't remember the exact title, but that's that's the concept. And this is something I have observed in every place that I've ever worked. There are two categories you can you sort of two continuums you can be highly likable highly unlikable highly respectable highly uh unrespectable and or respected or liked um and you can have people who are both liked and respected 
Uh, you can have people who are disliked and disrespected and you can have every other combination. You know, you can have people that don't like you, but they respect you, uh, or don't respect you and like you. And what's really common for people, whether they're in a workplace or a new social environment of any kind, they focus on being liked because it kind of gives you that quick, like endorphin release, you know, people, Oh, you're cool, man. I like you. You know, you make somebody happy. You, you please them. People focus on being liked as a way to navigate social situations. Um, and I think they un they undervalue being respected and highly overvalue being liked. And I think if you start off, how you start off is really important. I, I'm not one of those people who thinks you can never sort of recover from first impressions. But how you start off is really important um, because if you focus on being liked, I don't think you can ever make people like you enough that then they turn that into respect. I don't think that's possible. But I do think it's possible to make people respect you enough that eventually they start to like you. I have seen the latter happen. I have seen people who are cold and not very likable, but they get their work done. They're completely honest and trustworthy. They're just cold. They just are who they are. They never go out of their way to please you. And they rub people the wrong way. They're not very fun. You don't want to go have a beer with them. But you love that they do their job because you respect them. And if you work with them long enough, that respect can start to turn into liking them. You can actually start to enjoy who they are and what they're like and actually warm up to them in some ways. It doesn't work the other way around. The people who everybody loves, who please everybody all the time and who you just, you like, you can't start to like them so much that eventually you respect them. Um, you just won't. It won't go that way. So for that reason and many others, I always try to tell people just focus on and, and tell myself all the time, focus on being me in a consistent way that I don't care if people don't like it. That will make them say, I don't like him, but I respect him. I would much rather have haters that respect me than fans who don't respect me any day. Uh, so I think that's really important. But on, on the shit test concept, mm -hmm. so you you mentioned two people who have been guests on this podcast, Michael Malice and Jeremy McClellan. Jeremy's a comedian. Michael Malice is a, an author and a, a public figure. He's on a lot of TV news shows and things. Both of them highly entertaining, very intelligent. And both of them incredibly active on social media. So I'm assuming what you mean is you have seen examples of people attacking them. A shit test is different than just an attack, though, right? G give, me, give me a specific example and why, why you would call it a shit test. Is the person doing it deliberately testing you or is it subconscious? They want to see how you respond and that will determine how much they respect you. Uh, is it conscious, subconscious, and how does it differ from just uh, generic attacks or hatred? It, that's a really good question. So the first thing to be understood about a shit test is that it isn't always intentional. It is often unconscious. And sometimes it's not even about trying to manipulate you. It's about having uh, seemingly contradictory desires. Sometimes a shit test is the natural expression of you know, just the, the nuanced nature of being human. I, I'll give you an example. I, I call it the, the frat boy version of the shit test. So let, let's say, let's go back to college. Let's talk about the frat boys. Frat boy, you know, meets a girl that he likes. She's a gorgeous girl. He goes out, goes out with her. And what the frat boy wants is he wants this girl to be intimate with him, 
as easy as possible. He wants to score, to speak in frat boy terms. He wants to score, and he wants this to be as easy as possible. And if he succeeds, he's going to go brag to all of his frat boy friends. And they're going to give him props and like, oh, you're the man. That's so awesome. He's going to be very pleased. However, if the girl says, no, I want to take my time. I have standards. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to go in that direction. Certainly not on the first date. The frat boy will be disappointed. He'll be disappointed with her. But even in his disappointment, he's going to respect her. Now, now, here's the thing. Here's how the shit test element plays out. Let's say the frat boy goes for it. The girl turns him down. He gives her shit. It, this, may, this may take the form of being passive aggressive, blowing her off, not calling her back, ignoring her, maybe even making some rude comments because he's genuinely frustrated. He's genuinely unhappy. He didn't get what he wanted. Yet, even though he's unhappy and didn't get what he wanted, he'll respect this person as someone that has standards and doesn't just bend to his will. On the other hand, if he gets what he wants really easy without a challenge, he'll be happy in the short term because he want what he wanted. But he also will have a very difficult time respecting that girl because his ability to respect her will require him to have to overcome some kind of challenge that indicates that she has standards. So yeah, in, in it, this example, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. it makes me it, it reminds me of I'm huge on this theme that our brains are sort of gut instinct or our subconscious mind is far more intelligent than we often get it give it credit for so things that we aren't necessarily consciously doing or choosing or calculating uh our brain is doing i think more of that than we than we assume so in this case even if this person is not deliberately administering the shit test they are absolutely making use of the results of the shit test so so even if he the guy wasn't like okay i'm gonna give her crap and give her, you know, uh, a bunch of shit about, you know, not caving. And I'm going to see how she responds. And if she holds firm, that will tell me this is somebody that's worth having a long-term relationship with. If she doesn't, that will tell me that it's not that type of person. And I won't respect her as much. That probably wasn't conscious. It probably wasn't a consciously created test. It was more just in the moment, this is the behavior. However, the results of that test, the way the person responds are absolutely taken into account consciously. You absolutely say, oh, okay, it's that kind of person. It's the kind of person who caves, got it. I put him in a certain category, cool to hang out with in certain areas, you know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna marry this person or whatever maybe, or you know, you, you're, gonna, you're gonna respond to the results, the way that that person responds to the shit test, you are absolutely going to use the results consciously uh, even if you weren't consciously trying to do it ahead of time. Is that, is that kind of where you're going? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you see another version of this. I mean, I think there are a lot of great examples of this in the dating world, but I think, I think the concept of shit testing explains what happens when uh, you, you have this whole issue of good guys and girls liking the bad guys. Why, why do girls say they want a good guy but they actually like bad guys. I think that's kind of a myth, and I think it's an oversimplification. Um, when we say good guy, what we often mean is agreeable guy. What we often mean is nice guy who acts, speaks, and behaves in a way that will appear to be uncontroversial, that will appear to be likable and charming. If he knows the girl wants something, he gives the girl what she wants, not because he necessarily believes in that idea of goodness, 
but because he's expecting a reward, he's expecting to be appreciated. This is a strategy that he believes is going to work. Yeah, the, the guy who pretends to like puppyism, pretends to dislike sports and off-color jokes uh, so that he's agreeable, <laughs> that's that's portrayed as the nice guy, but there's something in that that's false that's, that's failing the shit test. Um, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, you, you see. And, and by the way, like we, we see some quote unquote bad guy, like 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 let, let's say some let, let's say a, a girl says, yeah, my my favorite movie is Fast and Furious Part Three. And the so-called bad guy says, really, that's a crappy movie. I hate it. Now, the good guy watches this and goes, oh, this is such a bad guy. What a stupid guy. He's never going to. And the girl is attracted to him. She likes him. Well, what's going on? Are, are girls duplicitous? Are they stupid and inconsistent and hypocritical? Like, no, 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 no. What we call bad guy often is, not always, but often is just a guy with a backbone, just a guy who isn't afraid to be real about what he feels um, because he's a, you know, he isn't afraid of offending you. The bad guy is usually the guy who says, well, hey, if you don't like me, you know, that's cool. Maybe we're not meant for each other. That's fine. Other fish in the sea for you and me. And, 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 the, yeah, key, ahead, the, the key there is is having a the backbone to be who you really are because you see people observe the external effects of what you just described and take mm -hmm. away the wrong message and say, oh, got it. So just be disagreeable and be yep. rude uh, and then people will like you and they'll respect you and they'll think that you're like, you know, the bad guy or whatever. And that's just as phony. I mean, there are people who like to pretend uh, to be, you know, to hate things or to be rude or where, where that's not really who they are. Like some people, they everybody has different levels of natural kind of edginess to them, different preferences. So pretending to be disagreeable is, I think, equally failing, at, you know, that that test that gives you respectability as protecting pretending to be agreeable. It's probably less common. I think it's it's probably definitely less common. Um, but that would yeah. be the wrong thing to take away. Absolutely. And people often, you know, when they hear this kind of talk, they go, well, wait a minute. I'm a good guy. I, I like a good guy in my life. And it's, hey, you know what? I strive to be a good person in my life, too. Being a good person is a good thing. However, we got to make that distinction between authentic goodness and what I call strategic goodness. You're not being good unless you're being good from a place of sincerely believing in whatever your standard of goodness is for its own sake. If you're using goodness as a strategy to be liked because you're afraid of rejection, then that, that that's really inauthentic and you're just setting yourself up for hurt. But, if but, you don't if you don't cop to it. Because I, I would even I would even say there are examples of people who will say Oh, I don't care at all about this, but I'm going to, uh, you know, pretend to care because it will. People won't give me crap about it. If, like, like even, even sort of pretending or, um, you know, bending. I think can be fine if you're completely upfront that this is what you're doing. Oh, I'm only doing this, you know. Uh, here, I got you this because I know you like it. I don't like it at all, but I thought maybe it would make you like me. You know, even even if you're really yeah. upfront. Again, that's not really like. That's not really, you know, not being yourself. It's more just acknowledging that you're not pretending um, that what you're doing is for any other reason than the specific end that you have in mind, which is the true end, I guess. Oh, oh yeah, totally. And sometimes people appreciate that even more when you do it. Like my wife went to go see a horror movie with me on my birthday once, and 
she hates horror movies, doesn't like it at all. And she didn't pretend to like it. It was very clear that I don't want to do this. I think this is stupid. However, I'm going to go for you because I like you. Uh, and I think I think it'll mean something to you. And I was like, oh, man, that's kind of cool. And I've done that for her before, too. I've done things with her where it's like, I'm not going to pretend like I enjoy this, but I enjoy you. I, lo I love you and I'll be a good sport about it. So let's do it together. And people can respect that. You know, people don't need you to be identical. They just need you to be real. But I, I, I want to bring it back to what's at the heart of this this whole idea of shit testing. It, it's really about whether people are conscious of it or not whether they know they're doing this or not, they're giving you shit about something that you're doing. And the reality of it is, if you try to appease them, if you bow down in an effort to win them over, you're going to fail the shit test because you won't even win them over. You won't even get what they want. They'll actually lose respect for you. So, so to give you an example from Jerry McClellan, he, he had it's, a guy- it's, it's Jeremy, by the way. You, uh, you are famous I, I didn't for say this- Jeremy. I thought oh, I said Jeremy. Oh, I thought you said Jerry. Oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm going to be just talking fast. I know it's Jeremy, hey, yeah. you got to admit that you are famous for just, like, making free with people's names. Like, oh, yeah. You'll meet, you'll meet someone for the first time, and they'll introduce themselves as Kendall, and you'll be like, hey, man, how's Ken doing? And I'm like, Ken, who's Ken? <laughs> yeah, how's Ken? Like, wait, you can't call him Ken. You, like, anyway, go ahead. I, I never do that, man. Never have I ever done that. So anyway, <laughs> I, I was talking about Jay, Jay Clelly and, and my man Jay Clelly on his page. He had, a, um, you know, sometimes he'll post uh, fan mail that he gets or hate mail. And this is almost as good as his jokes, the way he responds to his trolls and critics. And there was one guy who basically said something like, do you ever think before you speak or do you just spew, spew stuff mindlessly out of your butt? And Jeremy responded by saying, actually, it's a little bit of both. And the guy responded back like, hey, I like that response. You know what I mean? And, and like the, the guy respected him because he wasn't shaken up. Now, imagine if Jeremy responded and said, oh, sir, I, I am really sorry for offending you, actually. And he wrote like some two paragraph intellectual well, let logic me give response. you the four step process I go through for writing my jokes. I take this very seriously. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, first of all, that dude would not have written you back and said, oh, now I understand your logic, right? That dude was not trying to understand you. He wasn't trying to be your friend. He was giving you shit. And, and the only way you can get through that is if you don't get all defensive and angry about it. So one, one good example of this, the, the TV show Parks and Recreation, there's a character, interestingly enough, whose name is Jerry. And Everybody on the show gives Jerry shit all the time. And he's actually the nicest, sincerest dude who probably is the only guy that shows up and does his job all the time and has everybody else's back. But whenever Jerry does anything like mispronounce a word, he, he might be attempting to say Muncie and he says Munchie or whatever. People laugh. They point it out. They go on and on and they joke about it for 10 minutes straight. And they don't do this to anybody else. But Jerry's big problem isn't that people always tease him and give him shit. The big problem is whenever they do it, he resists it. Like he gets defensive and he tries to explain himself. Or, oh, no, no, guys, this is what I really meant. And when it, whenever he does that, they just jump on him even more and tease him even harder. And the only thing that ever resolves it is when he agrees and amplifies, when he, when he laughs at himself 
and joins in on the teasing. And the moment he does that, they stop giving him shit. Why is that? Because the ability to laugh at himself, to not take himself so seriously, to not react to people's teasing as if it's a threat, to not react to people's disagreement as if it's going to make him crumble, sends out a powerful message that every creator, that every thinker has to send out to the world. And that message is, my happiness is not dependent upon your agreement, approval, and affirmation. I am not psychologically dependent upon you liking me all the time. I am not, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think it goes even even further than that too. Not just, I don't need you specifically to like me, but my brand, my identity, and who I am does not need to be perfect in order to be valuable. It's not so fragile that I need to defend it at every turn. I think of a, a great example of this on social media, a great way to sort of ask yourself if you're failing the shit test is the deleted the deleted comment. So when you say something stupid um, or embarrassing, and this is a little bit different than, than a shit test, but um, the ability to own it and laugh with people versus deleting it. So it, it requires a mental check. So I, ha- I had an example just re- just recently. <laughs> it just made me look so stupid. Uh, somebody shared on my wall a picture, uh, apparently was like from within a public school, a, p- a picture of like a schoolhouse with three gears in it. And one says parents, one says teachers, and one says students. And these, these are like, you know, interlocked gears. And it says, you know, the system works, the machine works when we all work together or something like that. And he shared it on my wall and I know this guy, so I'm assuming this is sort of making fun of the school system, the sort of factory-like school system. And so I see it and I'm like, oh, that's kind of a sad depiction. And so I comment like, geez, yeah, welcome to the machine. You know, you're just a cog. As long as you behave, it'll all function properly. And so I'm sort of giving it this sort of dark, serious interpretation, like, wow, that's really scary that, you know, school school administrators, whoever made this thing, sees everybody as a cog in the machine, completely missing the actual joke, the humor in it. The next person that commented was like, these gears as configured would not turn. They, they would bind up because <laughs> the way that they were set up. I, yeah, looked, yeah. I didn't even notice that. I didn't notice this would be a non-working configuration of gears. So like, oh, that's the joke. Now I look like this over-serious a-hole with like a like an axe to grind with the school system who's like, yeah, look at how dark and sinister these people are that they would you know portray people as gears. The joke was how silly it is that the gears don't even work and it's making these people look unintelligent rather than than you know uh, cold and machine like. But the fact that I didn't get it makes me look unintelligent. So there's this moment where he posted that immediately undermined. I was like, oh my gosh, now that I look at it, yeah, the gears wouldn't work. How did I miss that? Where my temptation was to delete my comment because it's so over serious and it misses the yeah. joke. Yeah. And I have this like, don't this this helps me make better comments uh, and think about what I'm writing. I have like a don't delete or edit things unless it's just for like grammatical changes or, or things like that. Um, so I was like, okay, I can't, I can't do that. Stop myself. I'm not going to delete it. Instead, I'm going to embrace it and just write, oops, I completely missed that. I guess I need more education. You know, that, that one passed me by. And the minute you do that, it actually opens people up. The very people that were about to be like, dude, this guy's so dense. He didn't even pick up the joke immediately are almost invited to make fun of you by you and to sort of become part of an inside joke, poking fun at me. And, you know, because I just admitted my stupidity here and it just, it just changes the entire 
atmosphere. It relieves my tension. I don't care. You, you know, yes, I, I missed it. I look at three gears and I didn't notice that they wouldn't work. It's, it's funny. Yeah. You know, I'm stupid. Great. It's, it's great. It doesn't matter. And then people joining in, I almost like it when they pile on, you know, and like, Oh, can you tell what two plus two is whatever. And, and just by not trying so hard to make sure your reputation doesn't reveal any flaws and just owning up to things, like you said, agree and amplify I think it's just a really powerful way to um, sort of get over yourself and enjoy enjoy life more and earn people's respect. Yeah, it, it relates to something that Zig Ziglar say, says about sales, basically two principles that number one, everything is sales and every interaction you have with another person, you're selling them something, even if it's intangible, everything is sales. And number two, all sales is a transference of feeling that you can't expect people to feel a certain way about your service or product if you don't feel that way. And, and if you bring the sensation of shame into your pitch, then other people are going to question it as well. And they'll say, well, maybe this guy's got a reason to be afraid. And, and it may be entirely unconscious. They may not be reasoning this out in a discursive manner, but if, but if you're acting with a lack of confidence in what you do and what you say and what you sell, that other person's gonna pick up on that as like, well, maybe I shouldn't be confident in their product. And, and I just see this play out in interpersonal relationships and the way brands interact with their audiences. Whenever you sort of apologize for something in a super serious way or in like a super nervous way, it's almost like it makes it worse. I can think of times when you know I've annoyed people or I've dropped the ball and I go into this super serious apology, like, I'm, I'm so sorry. And it's, it's almost as if the more dramatic I get, the more I sell them on the idea that they really should treat this dramatically. But when I own up to my errors and mistakes in a way that's genuine, but not all melodramatic, it's like, okay, it's cool. Like, hey, sorry about that. You know, my, my mistake won't happen again. I'll, I'll make sure I do this and that to make an adjustment. Cool. Most of the time, it's like, cool. So it, it, it's amazing what happens in the way you respond to the world giving you shit, whether it's because you made a mistake or whether it's just because you're trying to put yourself out there. But I, I want to bring this discussion from shit testing to creating. Hey, because hey, real, real quick, yeah, before yeah, we make that transition, how much do you want to bet um, the fact that we've said the word shit many, many times in this episode. And in fact, I'm probably going to need to change the uh, settings to show that this is explicit just so iTunes doesn't kick yeah. us off. Um, how much you want to bet that's going to result in a shit test where somebody will be like, hey, was that really necessary? And I, I, I already <laughs> know for a fact that's coming to me. Yeah, I yeah, already yeah. know for a fact. Yeah. And, and, I mean, yeah. and if, you, if you respond by, hey, you know, I'm sorry, it's maybe not. We just felt like, no, you've already, you've already failed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I already know that's coming for me, and 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 I'm I'm ready for it, right? <laughs> but you know, um, it, it's it's funny because I believe that consciously or perhaps unconsciously, we all know there's a shit test. We all know it. And what makes a shit test most difficult is the world doesn't tell you that it's a test. It's much easier to pass a test when you know that it's just a test. But you don't always know when it's a test. You just may experience it as mockery or personal attack or teasing or someone giving you a hard time or what have you. But when you try to create something, the world's going to give you shit. 
And if you fail the shit test by crawling into a hole or backing down like nobody likes me or nobody reads my stuff or that person was mean, if you crawl into a hole, run away and do that kind of stuff, the world will never respect you and it won't give you permission to create. It'll say, go, go sit back down and stay in your place. On the other hand, if you do like Michael Malice and you laugh it off and you say, hey, I'm not deliberately trying to be mean for the sake of being mean, but I'm not allowing my choices to be governed by some unhealthy obsession with, you know, the fear that you might think I'm mean. People will respect you. They may say, well, he's not my dude or I don't own his book. He may not be my favorite, but I respect him. He's doing his thing and they'll get out of your way and they'll give you permission to be a creator. In fact, I encourage people to conduct the following social media experiment. I say, just find one person you like. I don't care if it's like a Christian evangelist who always gives uplifting sermons, or if it's a political commentator who's always, you know, saying provocative, divisive things, or if it's a shock jock like Howard Stern, or a really nice athlete who always makes you say, now he's a good guy, he's a good guy. Just take five minutes and Google that person and use search terms like scandal, fraud, bullshit, things like that. And within five minutes, you can find someone somewhere talking shit about that person. And, and, and not just in some way that's obvious, oh, this is hate. You will find something by someone who sincerely believes that this person ain't nothing but crap. Go to any YouTube video, go listen to any song you like. You know, I don't care if it's Drake. Or if it's, you know, Celine Dion, just go to their video, look in the comments. Well, why did you pick two why did you pick two Canadians? Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that was that, that was uh entirely uh, coincidental, man. <laughs> it's funny because I, I was trying to pick two opposites, but those two are really like the same. <laughs> what, did, what did Obi-Wan say? In, in my experience, there are no coincidences. Yes. Who knows? You know, I, this makes me think to get it's a little bit off topic, but uh, I love thinking of examples. Uh, you like talking in big abstractions. I think it's fun to find some specific. I do too, actually. But I think it's fun to find specific examples. But um, there's sort of variations on it. And maybe I'm applying this shit test concept too broad and, and it's losing the specific, more specific meaning. But tell, tell me if you think I am. I almost feel like there are people who sort of preemptively <laughs> fail, like before the test has even been administered, they basically preemptively announce their failure at it. Here's an example. The, um, the, the, the constant disavower, the person who's always disavowing things that, you know, let's say they're a fan of a particular sports team and somebody on that team makes a dirty play. And immediately the first thing they're doing, I'm a fan of this team, but I just want everyone to know I do not support those kind of actions. That's not the kind of person I am. I'm just, and they're always out there. Hey, you know, I'm a man, but I want you guys to know I am not sexist. I am not like all the other men. I am a feminist at heart. I just, I want everyone to know that, you know, um, or, or, I'm, or, I'm hey, a biker, I, I, but I'm not the type yeah. of biker who ever gets in front of people on the road and cuts them off. Those people are terrible. They should be shunned. It's almost like they're preemptively apologizing and begging and, you know, like they're responding to a question that hasn't even been asked. Normally someone comes to you and says, do you, you know, do you take ownership over these horrible activities? Is that one of you? And, you know, to be, oh yes, I'm sorry. No, no, no. That's, that's a failure of the shit test to, to pass it is to say, what are you talking about? That has nothing to do with me. Or to just say, oh yeah, 
I do it all the time on purpose, just, you know, screwing around with people. But the sort of constant apologizer who's trying to find whatever groups might be offended with him or people might be offended with him by association and just constantly make sure to remind them that that he is not that type and he's sorry for his existence, you know, his or her. Yeah, it, it sends out a, w- a weak signal that says you're, you're not fit to lead. You're not fit to take charge of a situation. And, and sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes people know they're doing that. It, it's sort of like, you know, when you say I'm going to follow this dream, or I'm gonna go after this thing I want. People know that it's not just the logic behind you doing what you do that's gonna save you. People know that in the real world, you're gonna have to eat shit in order to get to where you wanna be. You're gonna have to go through some really difficult times. And people might test you out and, and challenge you uh, just, to, just to test your mettle to see if you can handle it. And if you just go into defending yourself logically all the time, you know, people may say, oh, I don't know if this person has what it takes. This person might be a little weak. There was actually a, a practice in the ancient monasteries where the way they knew how to let people in was by giving them a shit test. They, the didn't, they the didn't holy shit test. The, the holy shit test. There's probably, a, there's probably a Latin phrase that translates shit tests. That they... <laughs> yeah, totally, man. So so what would happen is someone would, would come to the monastery and they would express an interest in getting in. And the Abbey would say, no, you know, uh, go away. We're not looking for anyone. And if that person walked away, they would say, well, clearly this person was not worthy of the calling. Anyone that will walk away in response to rejection is not fit for the monastic life. We tell you you're not worthy and you go ahead and say, you're right. I'm sorry for wasting your time. I'm out of here. That's that that's not a high enough level of commitment uh, to survive the monastic life. Absolutely. They would only accept the person that wouldn't take no for an answer. The person that would say, no, I got to be a part of this. I know this is my calling or the person that might leave and come back and keep coming back until, you know, they, they, they sort of yeah, decide. You know what's interesting right, about that example is that what do we associate the monastic life with, with constant denial of self and humility and, you know, saying I am a sinner, I am unworthy, I need forgiveness, I need grace. And so we sort of associate that um, you know, self-denial and humility and all those types of things with someone who is kind of meek and will just apologize and bow down. But I, but I think that to really live that monastic life, I think it requires the opposite. I mean, it requires such a high degree of strength and um, you know, assuredness that this is what you're trying to accomplish and you will not be denied. I always think of that passage in the Old Testament where uh, I think it's Jacob wrestles with an angel and he won't let this this angelic being go until he gives him a blessing. And, you know, the, the angel, you know, like dislocates his hip and I don't know, maybe maybe it could kill him or something. But the, the point of the story is just so fascinating to me that that's behavior that we typically associate with kind of arrogance or entitlement demanding a blessing or, you know, just disobedience or, or being sort of rap, rebellious. Somebody who would say, who would be turned away from a monastery and keep coming back and say, no, I do deserve to be in. You would think, oh, well, that's sort of a cocky, arrogant person. They're not going to get into a monastery, but there's a, there's a difference that that's a, that's a persistence. That's a refusal to deny who you are. Um, that kind of strength is required to do something very difficult, like live the monastic life. Oh, absolutely, man. And I think another important point to add into this discussion is that 
recognizing that you're in a shit test and doing what you got to do to pass it isn't about making nasty assumptions about the person who's giving you shit. You're not always going to know why they're giving you shit. So it's not about assuming that people are evil or that people really mean yes when they're saying no. It's not about forcing yourself upon someone and be like, no, you're just giving me shit, but you really want to go out on a date with me. It's not about that kind of stupid nonsense. It's about saying no matter how I take up space in this world, no matter how I express myself and what I go after, people are going to give me shit for it. It might be different types of people, but people are going to give me shit for it. So if in this episode I decided to use shucks instead of shit or crap instead of shit, I can think of some very specific people in my life who would give me shit for that and be like, dude, <laughs> you should have just kept it real. Like, like, like you, you weaken your message, man. You sounded so soft. Like, like stop being scared of your dad, man. Scott, stop being scared of like the church people back home. And now, like, <laughs> like I know specific people that would give me that kind of shit, you know? So like whatever route you take, there are going to be some people that give you a hard time. And sometimes they may have sincere motives. Sometimes they may be trying to do good. And sometimes there may be a lot to learn from the shit test, but, but the aim, but the value of using this metaphor, because it's not an absolute thing. It's not a map that takes you everywhere in life. It's, it's a conceptual tool, a way of seeing a metaphor like anything else. But the value of this metaphor is it, it puts you in a, in a mental space to where when people resist your efforts to express yourself creatively, when people get uncomfortable about it or whiny about it or pouty or upset about it, it puts you in a space that, that makes you say, all right, I'm going to be criticized for anything I do no matter what. So the basis from which I should act better be I really believe in this for its own sake, not, oh, I don't want so-and-so to be mad at me because I don't care who we're talking about whether it's your spouse or your kids or your audience, you are going to make somebody mad. And so if you're going to make somebody mad, it might as well be worth it in the form of yeah. you living a life where you're not going to end up being mad at yourself. Yep. Own it. Don't apologize for it. You know, one of my favorite real world examples that I witnessed many times, and I didn't, I didn't have the terminology. Uh, you, you hadn't yet introduced me to the term shit test. Um, but somebody that I worked with who was, uh, not all that uh, warm and fuzzy and likable necessarily, um, not dislikable, but respected by everyone, uh, really good at, at doing their job and in kind of a, a you know senior position. Whenever a new employee would start, I don't know if it was whenever, but often in the first meeting where the new employee and, the, and this person was, the new employee would say something or would be sharing an idea or it'd be, it'd be a brainstorming session or something. And the first chance available, this person would basically say in literally sometimes in these words, uh, but in, in different words, sometimes that's a terrible, stupid idea. And that new employee, the first time they got a chance to respond to this was the defining moment for them in terms of their ceiling at this place in the eyes of this other person. And if they would respond Oh, oh, yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, I didn't know. You know, I haven't been here very long. I'm, you know, apologize. Back down. The, the person who was giving them this test didn't necessarily dislike them or think that they couldn't do their job, but immediately knew, okay, this person has a ceiling. 
they're not going to be able to do certain things. They're not going to be able to move up in certain ways at this organization versus someone who responded, hey, I could be wrong, but I don't think it's a bad idea. I think it's a great idea. Can you give me some some evidence that it's not? I mean, you don't like it, but what don't you like about it specifically? Just pushing back and responding and owning it immediately that person was, okay, this is somebody I can talk to. I can be real. I'm going to bring them in on meetings. I'm going to start picking their brain. I see that they have further that they can go in the organization. And you would see it like clockwork every time. It was really amazing to watch some good people fail that shit test and immediately limit themselves in terms of where they could go in this organization. And it, and it was wow. never about the content itself, by the way. Um, the first time it happened to me, I had an idea that, that later I realized was a terrible idea, but I defended it and I demanded, you know, like, no, 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 it needs a fair hearing. And, you know, within a few weeks, I realized it was a terrible idea and this person was right, but it didn't matter. They didn't even care. It was just a shit test. And in that case, I actually think it might have been a deliberate tactic used by a leader to just determine what kind of uh, roles the, the, the people in the organization were capable of. That's super interesting, man. You, you, you make me think about stand-up comedians and how a lot of these people can just get away with saying all sorts of crazy, outlandish, vulgar things that nobody else can get away with. And when we listen to them, we all crack up laughing because we're thinking the same thing as them. You know, they're expressing what's in our heart and mind, but what we're, you know, too afraid to say because of the social consequences. Now, you can you can adopt a sweeping explanation of that phenomenon by saying, well, that's because we all know they're comedians. And that is certainly a part of it. But I don't think that captures the entirety of it. I think a part of it is comedians have a way of owning things and adopting a sense of humor about things that makes us more accepting of what they say. And there's something to be said about respecting individuals or accepting criticism from individuals when they have a habit of not being dramatic about it or like making it funny. You're just more likely to look at that person as, yeah, I guess they do have permission to say that. They do have a right to say that. But if, if the average person said what a comedian said, you, you would be able to see in their body language or their, their facial expression that they don't own it. They're saying it, you know, timidly. They're saying it weakly. They're kind of nervous about what the response will be. They don't just go with it. And it affects your reaction. And it makes you conclude uh, you don't have the right to say it. So anyway. This is, this is, by the way, why I think it's a misnomer. Well, I don't know that anybody believes this anyway. But um, the, the immediate assumption is people who are really, really funny become comedians. And then some, some people will get really upset at famous comedians who they don't think are funny. Why do people, why does this person have a career? They're not even funny. I think that a factor that's even more important than good jokes uh, is your will, your ability to pass the shit test, your willingness to not back down and to not run away and be afraid when you go too far, or you offend someone or whatever. I'm sure every comedian has had jokes that they <laughs> that they they would even say are too far, but they they haven't apologized for them or run away and tried to disavow them and do a press conference. I think those who can make it as a comedian are those who are unafraid to own who they are. And I know a lot of people who are really funny and who have really funny jokes, um, they're not comedians because they're not willing to share them publicly and stand by them. And you know, some, some people may not even be as funny as some other person hiding out there, uh, but they make it as a comedian because 
They're, this is their brand. And we think we think it's easy for them. Like you said, oh, well, comedians can say whatever they want because they're comedians. So they don't take real shit for it. They only got that way by earning that reputation, by continuing to be willing to make jokes that were offensive and say things and stand by them and not back down. If you do that long enough, people all of a sudden do give you permission to be that way. They didn't start off that way. Nobody starts off you know, being able to just say offensive things, you have to kind of earn it by showing you're not backing down. This is what you're all about. This is what you're doing. You're making these jokes. You're not afraid that they might be un, you know, sensitive for some people. All of a sudden you can get away with that. You know, it, this makes me think about a question I saw in my newsfeed this morning on Facebook and I, I forget which friend posted it, but it said, the question was, who is the most overrated public intellectual? In your opinion, and you had you had people listing out, you know, everyone from Sam Harris, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Norm it's, Chomsky. It's, all, it's all my the dream, by the way, to make a list of most overrated something. <laughs> yeah, the, the idea of overrated is just interesting in itself, worth an entire episode. But I, I wonder to myself, as I read the status and some of the answers, I wonder to myself, is it possible to even? be a public intellectual without being overrated? I mean, I would be curious to know someone's example of an underrated public intellectual, not just intellectual, because all intellectuals are probably considered to be underrated, but what an underrated or, or fairly rated public intellectual even look like? And, and it just got me to thinking about- I like what, fairly rated. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, think, I think the perception of, of that person is just about perfect. Yeah, that's about right. <laughs> Right, right. The fairly rated. I think that should be my brand. I'm gonna change it from tough-minded optimism to fairly rated intellectual. Um, <laughs> he's fair. He's fair. <laughs> um, but okay. So what's interesting to me though is it, it got me thinking about how you even become a public intellectual and all the intellectuals who are quote unquote worthy of being more popular because you know there are some people out there who see themselves as being more worthy of the fame than Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, and, and, you know yeah. there are, and you know there are some non-scientists who are looking at Neil deGrasse Tyson thinking to themselves, oh, but my physics professor is the real deal. You know what I mean? That's the dude that ought to be out there popularizing it. But what often separates the Neil deGrasse Tysons from everybody else is that they're willing to take the shit that comes along with being a public intellectual. Because as long as you're a sophisticated professor in a university who primarily publishes in peer-reviewed journals and you don't interact with the broader, shallow, superficial public very much with your ideas, and you primarily talk in a language that most people don't really care to understand, well, you're not going to deal with that kind of shit. You have your own perspective. Yeah, you're not, not going to have celebrities with hundreds of thousands of Twitter followers like tweeting you and making fun of you or, you know... Getting getting lampooned here and there. Yeah, it. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell is another one of those people too. <laughs> I think I hear more sort of serious intellectuals rip on him than like <laughs> they just, they just hate the guy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. As if as if everything he says in every book has to be perfect to be at all just considered like yeah he's got some interesting stuff he's a decent guy. It's like no 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 what a phony what a frog what a, you know i don't i don't understand the, the hatred i don't i don't agree with everything he writes but i have nothing <laughs> no bone to pick um i actually think one of the reasons one of the reasons many people don't create is because they know how much shit they give to other creators 
they know what's inside of themselves. They know how they are. And they know that when they step out there and stick their necks out, they're going to get what they're always giving. giving. And that scares them. You know, you know? it's funny you, you mentioned, too. It's not about what they do. It's the, the shit test can come from any direction. I think of examples of people who are maybe very scholarly in their research and then, and no one really paid attention. They all pretend like they respected them prior to them becoming a public figure. And then they write some sort of book or something that's more for a popular audience. And the shit they'll get is, why didn't they stick to doing the real research? They were good when they did that. Now they're making these broad, sweeping general claims that, you know, the research just doesn't justify. It's terrible. And that person's, you know, temptation is to, to then run away from that. But it can also go in the reverse. You know, it can go in the reverse. Like you, you write these, you know, publicly accessible books on philosophy or whatever else. And then you stop and start doing hardcore research. All your fans will be like, why did they chicken out? Why did they run away? You know, they were, <laughs> they, they're running away from their own earlier claims. It's like, you just can't win. You're going to take it. So just be who you want to be. Um, I, I have, can I, can I do one more shit test story that I just remembered? Oh yeah, absolutely. You, you'll love this one. We've talked about it. This is one of the greatest in the history of shit test stories. Uh, <laughs> Michael Jordan, he loved to figure out what his teammates were made of and whether they could play with him and, uh, you know, how, how were, were they willing to stand up because that's what it would take in the big moments. So, and if he could trust them. So he was famous for, for giving a hard time to new players. Well, there's a story I heard uh, Steve Kerr uh, talking about when he first joined the Bulls team. In practice, Jordan started berating him. And Kerr just stood there and didn't say anything, didn't back down. Um, in fact, I think he said he like walked towards Jordan. And Jordan actually punched him. He said he punched him, not like horribly hard, but like he had a little you know bruise on his eye or black eye. And Kerr just stood right back up and didn't, and didn't back down. And then Jordan just kind of smiled and walked away. And that was it at practice. And he said, from that moment on, Jordan trusted me. He would, he would give me the shots when we needed the shots. There's famous scenes of them on the bench with Jordan being like, hey, if I'm not open, I want you to take it. And then, of course, Kerr hit the famous shot where Jordan was double teamed. He dishes it off to Kerr, hits the game-winning shot in the, in the finals. They had that respect. Now, you could say, what a jerk. That's unfair. That's not right. You know? Kerr had the right. It doesn't matter about having the right to. And it doesn't even matter if it was a good idea or a bad idea for Jordan to be like that or if it was moral or was immoral. The point is, from Kerr's perspective, he saw something that very few other people did because most players failed that test with Jordan. Kobe is famous for this as well. He saw that he couldn't back down. That's what mattered to Jordan. He saw through what Jordan was actually saying. Whatever he was yelling at him about doing at practice wasn't really the thing. He saw that what Jordan really wanted to know is, how are you going to respond when I get up in your face? Will you be able to handle playing with me? And I think that's such a cool, such a cool story, such a powerful uh, illustration of that. That's really powerful. It, it makes me think of how some people may listen to this and think to themselves, well, it sounds to me like if you look at these sorts of things as a shit test, maybe it'll close you off to criticism. Maybe it'll make you close-minded. Maybe it'll make you the kind of person who insulates themselves from constructive feedback because you just dismiss everybody as giving you shit. Well, the first thing you got to remember is my earlier point about making sure you don't assume that just because someone gives you shit that they're consciously trying to manipulate you. But here's the second point. 
I think when you look at it as a shit test, it actually makes you more open to criticism because really a test is just something that's there to help you see where you're at, to help you see what you're made of. That's what a test is. So when someone gives you shit and you look at that as a shit test, it makes you say, huh, this is an opportunity for me to look within and see what I'm made of. Can I laugh at myself in this moment when I made a mistake? Can I be at peace with my universe in spite of the fact that some dude in Kentucky or Chicago thinks I'm an idiot? Can I, can I move on with my life and continue to grow, learn, and create even though everybody doesn't find me cool, charming, or impressive? Can I do that? Can I, can I live with the reality of being liked? And when you say yes to that, you can listen to criticism without a threat. You can take the world's feedback without a threat. You're less likely to run from it because you're looking at everything as an invitation to look within, see what you're made of, and show the world what you're made of. Mm-hmm. Hey, world, you can give me all the shit that you want, and I'm going to use it all for an opportunity to only do two things, laugh and learn. But I damn sure am never going to stop creating. All right. I just thought of one final story. I swear this is the final one. <laughs> Go for it, man. This is the wisdom of Phil Jackson, famous NBA coach, who's known as being the Zen master, very peaceful. He's known of getting people with you know big egos who don't always like each other to play together in harmony. I mean, he coached Jordan through his championships. He coached Kobe and Shaq. And so you think of him as a guy who would be trying to diffuse a situation and not escalate it and remove conflict. But I think that underestimates his intelligence. So there's this great story about Kobe they get, uh, who was it, Ryder? Was it J.R. Ryder? Do you know who I'm yeah, talking about? Yeah, 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 it was J.R. Ryder. Joins the Lakers when Kobe's there. And Ryder was a legit player. He was playing really well. He was kind of a rising star. He had some swag. He had some, some skill. And he was going to be a big piece. So he comes. And in the practice, he's probably trying to preempt all the, the shit testing he knows Kobe is going to do. So he starts talking trash to Kobe. He kind of initiates it and is... And is trying to, you know, oh, I'm better than you. This isn't your team. I'm a, I'm a skilled player. It's not the Kobe show, blah, blah. So Kobe says, and I think maybe he made one move on Kobe during scrimmage. And if anybody scored on Kobe, he always wanted to challenge them to one-on-one after practice. And he would stay there, you know, and beat them in one-on-one just to like make up for the fact that they scored on him. So he might've scored on him or something. And Kobe's like, let's go, let's go one-on-one. You're going to talk all this stuff. The story goes that, Phil Jackson, he usually would let them practice, let them Kobe play one-on-one with guys after practice to, to like beat them and assert his dominance. He actually stopped practice, cleared the court, told everybody, get off. Kobe and JR are going to play one-on-one. And all the old vets, they all sat there. They were all cheering and hooting and hollering and trash talking. And Kobe completely dismantled this guy in one-on-one. I mean, the stories are like legendary about how much he just picked him apart. And everybody's cheering and hollering. And JR never tried that kind of stuff again. His career wasn't all that great. He's like, well, whether or not that ruined his career is a separate question. But the thing that I love about this story is as soon as Phil Jackson recognized this, he didn't do the normal thing. He didn't wait. You know, when Kobe said, you know, let's play one-on-one after practice, this guy came up and was like trying to say, I'm going to dominate over Kobe, whatever, trying to preemptively pass this test. And Phil was like, let's see what we've got. Let's let every let's see if this kid can handle the whole team and the sidelines hooting and hollering and cheering, stopping practice right now 
and let's see what happens. I think there's something so fascinating about Jackson himself using Kobe's shit test as a way to observe <laughs> if JR had what it took to play with uh, with his other teammates. <laughs> I love that story, man. All right, so I, I got a concept and a story I want to share. Um, w- one concept that I feel is at the heart of dealing with shit tests is what I call the zone of power. Um, the zone of power is basically... <laughs> is that like the conjoined triangles of success from, from, <laughs> from Silicon Valley? Uh, I've never, I never heard of that term. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's from the show Silicon Valley. You got it. It's amazing. They're they're just making fun of uh, business speak. But go, go ahead. The zone of power. Yeah, dude, this, this stuff like this is so cheesy, but I just love it, man. Like, I feel like when I give a label to somebody... <laughs> <laughs> I just get more use out of it. It's so crazy. But yeah, the, the zone of power is, is basically, I, I describe it as the mental and emotional space you occupy when you make decisions from a place of conviction and integrity. Um, so um, as opposed to, um, you know, stepping out of your zone of power and trying to figure out, well, what, what will work? What will get them to like me independently of your own integrity? So, so for instance, I, one story I have, there was one day where my wife wasn't in a good mood and I had went to Starbucks to get me a coffee before coming home. And I thought to myself, oh, should I get her a coffee? I didn't know if she wanted one or not. Should I get her a coffee? And, and I got myself into this little dilemma because I didn't want to call her up when she was in a bad mood and be like, do you want a coffee? Because if she didn't want to be bothered, she might snap at me or something or or be annoyed and be like, leave me alone. And I didn't want to not get her a coffee because if I came home with a coffee just for me and, you know, I look like a selfish jerk and I make her feel even worse. And it's like, man, you don't even care about me. But then if I get a coffee and she didn't want one, you know, it might be like, man, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Why'd you give me coffee? I didn't want this. Or I wasted my money or what have you. And I found myself in this crazy headspace for several minutes. And then it's like I snapped out of it and said, what the heck? What is wrong with you? TK, who cares what works right now? You don't have access to that information. What kind of guy do you want to be? Like, like, like what decision feels good to you? What feels right? And, and the decision that felt right was give my wife a cup of coffee. Oh, and I she, thought you were going to say the decision that felt right was buy her a cup of coffee, get home, hold it in front of her, and then slam it to the ground. I came home and was like, hey, drink this coffee. No. <laughs> but I, I said, you know what? I like being the kind of dude that buys coffee for my best friend in the world just in case she might want one, okay? And if she doesn't, what's the big deal? Even if she's annoyed, it doesn't matter. I got her a cup of coffee. I stand by the decision. I thought it was the right thing to do. I made it from a place of sincerity. And if she doesn't like when I do that, she can tell me and I can increase my intelligence and make sure I take that into account next time. But as for right now, do, just do what feels right for you. And and I, and I made that decision, made it with confidence, came home, you know, and was in a chill mood, told her I got a cup of coffee and she appreciated it and she thanked me for it. But even if she did not appreciate it and thank me for it, I wouldn't have felt bad about myself for one bit. I wouldn't have let it ruin my day. And, and this is what I think 
passing shit tests are about. It's about whether someone gives you shit consciously or unconsciously, whether someone gives you shit for good reasons or for bad reasons. It's about reacting and responding to that from your zone of power and never compromising what you genuinely believe is the right thing to do just for the sake of keeping somebody from being annoyed with you or being, you know, disapproving or, or anything like that. I mean, that's what it's all about, staying in that zone of power. And, you know, a lot of times, even, even when people give a shit for good reasons and we feel like apologizing, there's a fine line between owning things from within your zone of power and owning things weekly. So, for instance, one of my policies is I, I never apologize like 50,000 times for something that I do wrong. You know, because my philosophy is if I really mean it when I say it, then, then I only need to do it once. Now, when I do it that one time, I'm going to do it well. I'm going to say everything that I need to say, and I'm going to say it with sincerity. But I'm not going to apologize 10, 15 times. I'm not going to get on my knees and beg, you know, and, and, and you'll even have, it's funny because you even have on the internet, man, like people will get into arguments and debates and someone will correct another person or point out an error in that other person's, you know, what, what they said. And, and people will act as if they have some sort of power to manipulate you and make you jump in the way they want you to jump because you did something that you know, bother them or whatnot. And, and people get off on that kind of control. And, and, and so being in your zone of power and passing the shit test, it's not even about thinking that you're right all the time. It's about saying, I have a right to be right and I have a right to be wrong. And whether I'm right or wrong, I'm always going to respond to it from within my zone of power. And I'm never going to apologize more than what is necessary. And I'm not going to apologize when it's unnecessary. And when people give me shit, whether it's for a good reason or a bad reason, I'm not going to take any shit. Even if I have to take their criticism, I'm not going to take shit for the fact that I'm a person who's worthy of criticism sometimes. You know, I think it's also about not requiring external validation for your sense of self-worth. You know, the coffee yeah. example is, is such a powerful one, and it's actually a really common scenario. The signal it sends when you just come home and you have two coffees, you're like, here, I got you a coffee. It automatically conveys that you both are thoughtful and you don't care that much. Like if she doesn't want the coffee, you're not going to be broken up because you just chose to buy it already knowing it was a risk. You didn't care. You obviously weren't too worried about the $2 or whatever. It just conveys, here, I got this. You want it, you don't want it, whatever, that you're not needing her. You're not like, hey, you know, I really, did you want a coffee? I thought maybe, you know, when you ask somebody, it's almost like asking if you can help someone, there's this weird thing where, um, you know, let's say someone's coming into the office and they call and say, hey, can I pick you up some coffee? They've immediately put you in an uncomfortable position where like, you're like, well, I don't know, would it be rude to say, <laughs> yes, get me a coffee, you know? Um, and then, well, what kind do you want? Well, and then you're like, I don't want to give them my kind is like really complicated and, you know, it's a almond milk cortado with a, you know, whatever. They put you in a weird position and they're not operating from a place of power, that zone of power you talked about. I can't even say that phrase. It's so cheesy. And <laughs> Just try the Z-O-P. The Z-O-P. And uh, it makes you, there's an awkwardness. There's like a lack of respect. The whole relationship takes on this sort of phony additional layer of gamesmanship that that I think is is good for no one. 
Contrast it with someone just making a decision. They come in and they either got you a coffee or they didn't. And they don't need your agreement and validation in the process. You know, they took a guess. They got you coffee and they brought some creamer. If you want to mix it, you can mix it. Um, or someone asking you for help. I've noticed this, like if you go through a hard time and someone comes up and says, hey, let me know if there's anything I can do to help. Can I help? Now, again, I've said that myself. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but it's not at all helpful really. And it kind of puts the burden on the other person. And it's, and it's probably, you probably say it because the person you're saying that to, you don't know well enough to actually know what they might need or to be willing to do something tangible. So you want to signal that you care by saying, Can't, let me know if I can do anything, but you don't know them. You really aren't at the level where you really do want to do something. And it kind of comes off as disingenuous. Contrast that to someone's like, you know, uh, after my father-in-law and my nephew died a couple of years ago, you know, someone, a friend was like, hey, give me the keys to your house. I'm like, what are you talking about? We're going to come over and clean it and mow the lawn while you're at the funeral and uh, leave dinner for you. They just told me, and if they didn't need the key, they wouldn't have even told me. They just would have done it. They just told me, I'm going to help you. Here's how. And that's just from that zone. They didn't need me to be overwhelmed by that. They didn't need me to acknowledge, wow, that's so nice of you to do this. They didn't need any of that stuff. They were just doing what they wanted to do for their own reasons. And that's so much better than the person who's like, let me know if there's anything I can do to help. Because then you don't know what to say. I'm not going to call them and be like, hey, could you go sweep my house? You know? Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, it makes me think of how we often confuse caring with being dramatic. In fact, I'm sure most people have been in a situation before where someone around them was reacting really dramatically to a problem. Oh, you know? wait, can I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. Can I really quickly, I wanna add this caveat. I wanna make sure that yeah, yeah. it's understood. I'm yeah. not saying that from now on, if someone goes through a hard time, you need to immediately figure out a tangible thing to do to help them and go and mow their lawn or something. I'm saying, ask yourself, if doing that sounds weird or uncomfortable to you, then it's probably someone you don't know well enough to help anyway. And you probably don't need to give them a sort of phony open-ended, let me know if there's anything I can do um, because they're not going to, and that's not going to help them. And, and stop trying to get points for signaling that like you don't have to help everyone. You don't have to be close enough to everyone that you genuinely reach out to do something. Because if it's not genuine, if it feels weird to do something really specific or you don't have enough knowledge, then you probably just shouldn't do it at all. Anyway. No, man, absolutely. Great, great point. I mean, you said it as well as it could be said. I, I think, I think the lesson here really is you're in a much better position to serve the world when you serve it without fear. You know, anytime you serve from a place of fear, you compromise your ability to, to solve people's problems and create value for them. It makes me think of how when I worked at a restaurant, I won't mention the name of the restaurant. I've worked at several. There was a customer who came in and a, a co-worker said to me, hey, that person is a bleep bleep, always <laughs> satisfied. They're going to send their food back. And... You know, I was tempted to get a little nervous, but I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm just going to play it cool and, and, and hope for the best. You know, uh, I'm not going to base my experience on this person's experience. So I, I served this customer. And when, you know, I, I brought the food out, this person said to me, my food is not properly cooked. And, and, and they started to chew me out. They went off. It, it was kind of 
you know, embarrassing. They were a little loud. People, people are, are looking like, uh oh, what's going on? And when they said that to me, I didn't flinch. I didn't grovel. I, I, I didn't go, oh my God, oh my gosh. I didn't stutter. I just said, I totally understand. I'm going to fix that for you. And I took the plate, took it back, got the problem resolved, brought it back, made sure that it was comped. And I said to this person, I said, I'm genuinely sorry about what happened. Please let me know if this is to taste. And we've taken care of that for you. If there's anything else I can do, just let me know. And this person looked at me and smiled and said, I really like you. What do you do? And we began to talk and we began to have a good conversation. And that person became a regular of mine. Now, here's the thing. I didn't do some sort of like fake alpha dog routine where I said, <laughs> you, you listen here, Buster. You're not going to come in my restaurant bullying me around. You're going to eat that steak like I gave it to you. You know, and then they respected me. No, that's not what happened. That was kind I, of a Bill Walton voice, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I can actually, I can actually do a, a good Bill Walton. <laughs> Unbelievable! I can't believe you didn't like the steak. This is ridiculous. Back when I played with Patrick Ewing and the New York Knicks or rather the Boston Celtics and Larry Bird, these guys loved the steaks. They were amazing. Unbelievable. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So back, back to this point. That's not what I did, right? I, I owned it. I apologized. But I didn't do it from a place of fear. I did it from a place of genuinely caring about them. You don't have to be dramatic in order to care, and you don't have to be in fear in order to serve. You know? So so she gave me shit, but I responded to that from that zone of power. To to, to use that cherished phrase. Bring it all back to the zone of power. Zone of power. <laughs> sounds like sounds like uh, I don't know, like a, a a pitching uh, strike zone or something. Anyway, I think I think it sounds like a, a a song featuring Fifty Cent and Dr. Dre. I don't care what they say about me. I'ma always be M I Z O P. I think we better. I gotta work on that. I gotta work on that cadence. Yeah, a I think we better end this now. This is a good. This is a good place. <laughs> hey, I love it. Uh, thanks for taking the lead with this one and uh, having a great topic. Absolutely, man. All right. I feel like something else is supposed to happen here to end this. Oh yeah, a recommendation. Got anything? Anything relevant to shit test? Ooh, you you you, you limit it when you say shit test. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Okay okay. I got you. I got you. Um, Dr. Wayne Dyer has an excellent book called How to Pull Your Own Strings. Real quick caveat: Wayne Dyer has a reputation for being a new agey cat, metaphysical dude often lumped in the same category as Deepak Chopra. And certainly there is some intersection when they get to talking about like law of attraction and stuff like that. But this book is a straight up hard nosed, heavy hitting, um, you know, piece of work on how to stop allowing yourself to be unnecessarily victimized and manipulated. What's it doesn't what's require the title again. What's the title? It's called, it's called how to pull your own strings. It may be called pulling your own strings, but yeah, um, How to Pull Your Own Strings by Wayne Dyer. One of the best books I've ever read on learning to make demands on people without being disrespectful and inconsiderate of other people's rights and needs. It's a great book about speaking your mind, saying what you got to say. And, and maybe maybe one of the basic premises of the book is that ultimately 
other people treat you how you train them to teach you based on your responses. People don't respond to your whining. They respond to the respect that you demand for yourself. And he gives you some practical tips on, on how to go beyond the philosophy and take back charge of your life and not be a person who takes shit anymore. Another book is by Jay Carter called How to Deal with Nasty People. Similar theme, but I, it's not as, as deep and as long as Wayne Dyer's. Get Wayne Dyer's book first, though. Yeah, I heard that the Wayne Dyer book is even better if before you read it, you set it down with a crystal in the zone of power for about a half an hour. <laughs> and then how to deal with nasty people. Okay, I'll add that to the show notes. Um, my recommendation is going to be, since you brought up Michael Malice as a good example of somebody who sort of passes this uh, repeatedly, hit the book about him, written by uh, Harvey Pekar, the, the same graphic novelist who did uh, American Splendor, which was turned into a movie, uh, award-winning guy. He did a book about Michael Malice's life called Ego and Hubris. And it is hilarious and entertaining, but it also has, it's full of great examples of sort of, you know, um, I don't know, amplified examples of not kowtowing and apologizing for who you are and seeking constantly to have people be you know, not offended and seeking their approval and really just passing shit tests. So Ego and Hubris by Michael Malice will be my rec for the week. Good stuff, man. All right, man. Peace out. We'll talk next week. Holla.